one-third of all murder cases in America remain open. He had told me that if I opened my eyes, he would slit my throat. Each one is called a cold case. The DNA evidence taken from the victim was a match. The linen rapist was at it again. Based on the hit A&E television program. A phone call is placed. One that changes a family's life forever. Cold Case Files, the podcast. If you could see the fire in his eyes, he screamed at me. You want it? Get your tape recorder out. Get new episodes of Cold Case Files every Tuesday on Podcast One, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Well, I want to share some interesting information with you today, and uh, please do listen carefully to the end as the special offer includes some free gifts. A significant health problem today. People all over the world sleep. Yep, majority of people lacking energy throughout the day. But these symptoms are actually from a bigger problem. It's difficult to gain control over, and that is sleep. Sleep can affect mood, hormones, weight gain, cardiovascular, pulmonary health. If you're finding yourself staring at the ceiling hours through the night or you're waking up in the morning feeling like you didn't get enough sleep, your sleep hygiene wasn't right, try a simple bedtime routine that works. All it takes is a glass of water and two safe magnesium breakthrough capsules 30 minutes before getting to the pillow. Seven essential forms of magnesium included in this serving helps you relax, unwind, hopefully turn off your brain. Magnesium Breakthrough has become a household name over the years because of its reputation. Just recently, the company released the fourth upgrade formulation that works even better. Simple, cost-effective solution that I suggest you try. It may help. And for a limited time, by Optimizers, the makers of Magnesium Breakthrough, is offering additional bonus gifts for the next 1,000 customers or while supplies last. They are including three bottles of their full line of digestive health products, including their powerful digestive enzymes, massozymes, and their patented probiotic P3OM, which I take regularly, and their HCL product to alleviate heartburn and acid reflux. This means you're getting free products to try that will support your digestive health and hopefully experience less bloating and gas. Having an optimized digestive system may also add to more energy and help you digest food, hopefully absorbing the nutrients you need. MagBreakthrough.com slash Drew. Enter Dr. Drew 10 to activate the exclusive limited time offer. This offer is only available at this special access website. It is MagBreakthrough.com slash Drew. One more time, MagBreakthrough.com slash Drew and use Dr. Drew 10 for 10% off any order. Yo, next round is about to start. You ready? Yeah, yeah, just shopping for a car in Carvana. For real? Yeah, Carvana makes it super convenient to shop whenever, wherever. For real? That's a ton of car options. Yep, and these are all within my price range. For really real? You can afford that? Yeah, with Carvana. And boom, just like that, I'm getting it delivered in a couple days. For really, really real? You just bought a car. For real, and you just lost. My turn. Visit Carvana.com to shop for thousands of vehicles under $20,000. Welcome, everybody. Appreciate you all being here. Appreciate you supporting the people who support us. Uh, don't forget to check out uh, DrDrew.tv where you can watch our streaming shows where I may bring my second present guest back again because I have lots to talk to him about. Uh, and also, um, where else? Oh, don't forget After Dark. After Dark needs some love right now. So Dr. After Dark, you can, put, you can find it at your mom's house or at DrDrew.com. My guest is Morgan Housel. New book is Psychology of Money, Timeless Lessons on Wealth, Greed, and Happiness, available now on Amazon. Morgan Housel. Dot com Morgan is like it sounds. Housel is H-O-U-S-E-L. Uh, also follow him on Twitter at, at Morgan Housel. Morgan, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. 
So I found you. I guess it was Sam Harris's podcast that uh, posted recently, and I was I became immediately in in, in entranced uh, and searched you out in a couple other places. And I didn't expect to see you this quickly, but I appreciate you being here. I got a billion thoughts and a million questions, and and I thought. All right. I thought the best way to do this is I, I know you've been through this story, your story, a number of times on a number of different podcasts. So just sketch it, sketch it for people so you know we just get that out of the way. How you got into this, what your story was, you know, how you got involved with the Motley Crew. Uh, excuse me, the Motley Fool. Motley Crew. Uh, and I would that, do the Motley Crew too. Yeah, be I, I bet you would. I mean, it sounds like fun. But uh, this was not this was not uh, a path you would have anticipated in life. Uh, you were going to drive the Lamborghini that you were uh, valeting for the guys in uh, Tahoe. Yeah, I was. I you know all throughout college, I was a valet at two fancy five star hotels. That's where I got my first kind of exposure to wealthy people. I had never really seen that side of the world. But as a valet at these hotels, people would come in in their Ferraris and their Bentleys and their Rolls Royces. And as a young person, I was you know nineteen, twenty years old at the time. That was my first exposure to be like, I want to be that guy. Whatever he's doing. I, that's who I want to be. The guy in the yellow Lamborghini, that's who I want to be, which is crazy now because that's the opposite of who I want to be now. But back then it was like, that's what I want to do. And I realized that this was in the early 2000s. Almost all of those guys worked in finance. They were investment bankers at Goldman Sachs. They were hedge fund managers. So I was like, great, that's what I'm going to do. That's my path. So all throughout college, my plan was to become an investment banker. And you went to, and you went to college Wall late. Street, you, went to Goldman col- Sachs. you went to college late. You had to catch up. That's right, because I, I really didn't have much of, of any high school education. I was a competitive ski racer in Lake Tahoe. I did an independent study program that was a complete joke. I really <laughs> didn't have any high school education to speak of. I got a diploma when I was 16, but I did nothing for it. Fabulous. So I started college when I was uh, 20, and I had to start at a local junior community college, remedial math, working my way up. But I still had, uh, you know, maybe it was just, I was just like kind of clueless as to my situation. I still had all this ambition that I was going to be a partner at Goldman Sachs. That was, that was who I was going to be. And then, so this was, you now as we're getting into like 2006, 2007, 2008, I'm, I'm still in college. And this is when the global financial crisis struck, when the Lehman Brothers went bankrupt, all the banks were, were, were blowing up, breaking down the global economy economy was a mess. And so I needed to find something else to do. Nobody was hiring on Wall Street, no hedge funds, no private equity firms were hiring. So I was like, okay, what am I going to do? I just desperately need a job here. And I stumbled haphazardly across a job at The Motley Fool as a financial writer, which had no intention, no plan of ever being a writer. It was never what I wanted to do. In fact, I found it kind of uh, embarrassing that I was going to be a, a professional blogger. That was, I, I found that just kind of pitiful. But I ended up staying for 10 years and falling in love with the process of writing about how people think about money, what's going through their heads. And at the time, it was the global financial crisis was everyone's broke. Their 401ks fall 50%. The banks are out of business. And so that was like a really interesting period to talk about what's going through people's heads. Because a lot of people went from very rich to bankrupt, like snap your fingers overnight. It just happened so fast. And, um, you know, and by most metrics, that was the worst economy since the Great Depression. So, so many people's hopes and dreams were shattered. And it was fascinating to me not to, to ask, like, where's the stock market going next? Like, how, like, what's, what, like, how strong is GDP going to be? I, I never really cared about that stuff, and I still don't. But I really cared about just what was going on in people's heads as they thought about their social aspirations and their worth in the world as it related to how they thought about money. So that's, that's, that's where this all came from. All right. And and if there was a a simple metric that you've learned, what would that be? Sort of the, the from the thirty thousand foot view. What's the one thing that 
that you've learned that it seems to be a truth? Uh, maybe it's surprising. Maybe it's not. What would that be? What? I think uh, uh, we tend to think about finance like it's math. And in math, there's one right answer for everybody. And a lot of people are just out there trying to find the quote unquote right thing to do with your money. Um, you know, what stock should you own? How should I invest? They're trying to look for one answer. And I think there's just so much evidence that equally smart, educated, informed people can make do massively different things with their money, and it's and it's fine. I probably invest my money differently from from how you do, differently from how other people do, and it doesn't mean that one of us is smarter than one another. It's just like we're we're different people with different situations, different incomes, different families, and so we're going to do different things with our money. This is really accentuated if you look at different generations. Um, everyone kind of anchors their view of the world onto what they've personally experienced in life. Everyone, like what you've experienced firsthand is way more persuasive than you, than anything that you could read about in a book or try to empathize with another person. So baby boomers, my parents' generation, grew up with uh, the inflation of the 1970s and the 1980s. They grew up with Vietnam. They grew up with the dot-com boom in the 1990s. That's their view of the world. My generation became young adults right at 9-11. And then uh, we, we graduated into the global financial crisis of 2008, kind of had a tepid recovery, and then everything melted down in 2020 with COVID. That's our view of the world. Or you can think about my grandparents' generation that lived through the Great Depression and whatnot. Everyone's view is different. And therefore, we think about risk. We think about goals. We think about social aspirations totally differently. So I think the biggest takeaway from all of behavioral finance is just that people think about risk differently. And most of the time that we argue and debate about what is the right way to spend our money, save our money, invest our money, we're not actually arguing. It's just people with different views of the world, different time horizons, talking over one another. And people get angry and upset that other people might view the world differently than they do. Yeah, this is, uh, I don't know if you know David McCraney, he's got a, a podcast called You're Not So Smart. He wrote a book, How Brains Change or How Minds Change. And he's, he came to this conclusion, he, he first thought we were just irrational. Now he's realized, no, it's not that we're so much irrational, it's, it's exactly what you're talking about. Hey, let me modify your view of the boomers a little bit. I think the the in addition to having experienced the financial boom of the 60s and the shock of the 70s, more important than that, boomers grew up with Depression-era parents, and the trauma of that was rained down on us. It was, it was absolute. I, I was profoundly traumatized. My, my dad started when I was two working on me because he was so traumatized. He was eight when his family lost everything in Chicago and was threatened with being on the streets. And uh, he never, never recovered from that. And uh, he had to, he had to yeah. as, as families do, he had to rain that down on me then. I think I think that's really right. There was also a, a you know the sense of when the boomers or from when the boomers' parents came home from World War II, yeah. they had just experienced ten years of the Great Depression mm-hmm. and then six years of World War II, yeah. and then there was this massive push to kind of modernize and build the new America, the new freeways, the new schools, the new airports, the new libraries, yeah. the new trains, like ever, just like build everything up. A huge push to build the great American society that kind of like was. Um, you know the the base for the 1950s and 60s and early 70s booming economies and the modern middle class and that kind of set the expectation of what of how the young baby boomers thought the world should work. We should have this level of econo- of economic prosperity and a strong middle class. And then when that started to break in the 70s and 80s, when your expectations were anchored to something so different than the new reality that they're coming into, I think that's when a lot of people started 
kind of losing their faith in the economy. And there's also a lot of evidence that that's when people started taking huge economic risks, going into greater and greater amounts of debt and taking on bigger risks because they were chasing this false dream that had been embedded in them of the 1950s and 60s economy. And and I heard you in in one of the podcasts asked a simple question, what was the most, what sort of the ideal, I forget how you framed the question, but what was the best economic decade uh, in, in American history? And that we have this lore of it being the 50s. Actually, when I, when I heard you ask that question, I thought it's probably 1885 to 1895 in reality because that's when there was just massive growth at railroads. And, you know, the, the, we hit, we ended up in a currency and a bank crisis simultaneously after that. But but for 10 years, and this was all post-Civil War growth, probably 1885 was the the best period. And there was all this – although we were screwing up Reconstruction at the time in just d- disgusting ways – there was hope that t- at that moment that we were going to do a yeah. better job. Uh, but it's the 1950s that's ensconced yeah. in our memory for no good reason, really. There's really, well, I think there are good reasons. They're just not the reasons people think. Right. So if you ask generations today, across generations, young people, old people, if you say, what was the best decade in the history of the American economy? Overwhelmingly, people point to the 50s. And that was what we remember as like the glorious middle class. Anyone who's willing to work hard can have a dignified life. That's what everyone remembers it as. And the crazy thing is that if you if, look, if, if, look if you were white, data, if you were white, if you're white, by the way, that's yeah. uh, uh, yes, it's <laughs> very you, fair. If you're point. white from European descent, by the way. Okay. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> that's and and not only, not only if you're white, if you were male, it was, yeah, yeah, it was a very yeah, good time for right, white, for white males. Right. There was actually, I would push back a little bit and say the progress that was made for uh, for African Americans after World War II relative to where it stood in the 20s and 30s True. was 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 fair enough completely was completely different but you're uh, you're you're, you're your and i often taken. i often also what wonder it, if, what's interesting if, about this? what what the, you know I've, I've noticed lately women are so unhappy and and i wonder if they were happier in other decades and with women and what that would what, why you know would, were they happier in other situations or anyway i've just noticed a lot of unhappiness lately but separate issue keep going it's 50s i think what What's interesting about the 50s is that if you look at the data in terms of like, what, how much money did people actually earn back then? And how did they actually live back then? Any metric that you spin it and look at it, we are so much better economically today than we were in the 1950s. The average typical median American household adjusted for inflation is something like twice as wealthy today than they were in the 50s. And where, uh, you know, workplace deaths were three times higher back then. The idea of retirement for virtually anyone back in the 50s was not really a thing. In the 50s, most people worked until they died. Mm. And that was just the expectation. That was the reality. Access to healthcare, uh, workplace sanitary conditions, like go on down the list. We're so much better off now than we were then. So then the question is, why the nostalgia? Why do we remember the 50s as being this glorious period if they weren't. And I think the most compelling answer to me is that for a, for many different reasons after World War II, uh, we kind of had this great flattening of the distribution of outcomes. Wealth inequality in the 1950s was way lower than it had been before or since. It was this period where you didn't have CEOs who were making $100 million a year. You didn't have athletes making $50 million a year, like hedge fund managers making billions of dollars. It was a period of like general flatness. And that was really important because people measure their well-being relative to everyone around them. Everyone just looks around them at their coworkers and their neighbors and they say, I'm going to measure how well I'm doing relative to that guy across the street. And like, how big is my house relative to his house? And that's how, that's how well I, I, that's, that's my place in the world. 
And the 50s were interesting because of the flat wealth inequality. Most people looked around the world and said, or looked around the country and said, I'm doing pretty well relative to everyone else. The guy across the street and the guy downtown and the person, their car down the street, they lived a very similar life to you. By and large, that was true, or at least it was truer than it had been before or since. And uh, I think what happened starting around the 70s and 80s is that as, as wealth inequality started to really split apart. And you had one group of societies that started doing very well economically and others who were stagnating, if not declining. Then that whole comparison broke down. And then it was easy to, you know, if you had your middle-class job, even with higher wages than you had earned in the 50s, all of a sudden your boss is driving a Rolls Royce and flying in a private jet and living in a 30,000 square foot house. And then in that world, you look at that situation and say, hey, actually I'm falling behind, even if you're earning more money than you did in the 50s. Social media, I think, just poured kerosene on this problem because yeah. now everyone, particularly young people, open up Instagram and their view of, of, of quote unquote everyone else and their yeah. measure of their worth in society is a curated list of the most beautiful and wealthy fake people yeah. living the most extravagant lives you can imagine. Yeah. So I think it's just exploded in the last decade. Yeah. So so that is the topic that I hauled you in here to talk about. But I, but I want to do some more talk, some more groundwork before we get into that. Because you're talking about envy. And, and I've noticed that the word didn't come up in any of the other podcasts that you were doing. And I want to dig in deep to that because you're into behavioral economics. And envy is a profound process right now. And one of my gravest concerns, but we're going to table it for a second, okay? Uh, I, I want to talk about – I want your definition of rich versus wealth. I want that under this conversation. Uh, and I want to point out that as far as it pertains to the 50s, uh, medical care was not nearly as good as it is today. I would say what you will about the medical system. No. The, the care is like extraordinary now compared to that. Um, and as Carol always points out, everybody has you know cars that work great, air conditionings, iPhone, the world in their hand with their damn phone. I mean, there's so much magical uh, technology that we all have that was really only for the Rockefellers back in the '60s, if they could ever get it. And now we've all we've all got it. And so things are not just in terms of income and wealth and and uh, sort of um, infrastructure of living there's so much more that we have now from from the standpoint of technological advance that makes life completely better uh, so you're just I'm just adding fuel on your point um, yep uh, why uh, right, let's do the rich versus wealth let's talk talk about that distinction yeah and first I, I'm making these definitions up so people shouldn't take them that that seriously I think it's a good one though. rich I define as you have enough income you have enough income that you can make your monthly payments your your salary is enough that you can make your car payments make your mortgage payments and so you can use that to live what looks like maybe a good a good life you're making the the car payment on your BMW you're making the mortgage payment on your big ass house and it looks great wealth I think is very different wealth is almost the opposite wealth is money that you did not spend Wealth is money that you saved and invested and have not spent. It's sitting in your bank account. It's sitting in your brokerage account and you did not spend it. And the difference is really important because wealth is not visible. Because I can see the car that you're driving and the house that you live in and the clothes that you wear, the jewelry that you wear, but I cannot see your bank account and I can't see your brokerage account. So I have no clue how wealthy you are. So this is where we really conflate rich and wealthy is that most people who see someone driving a fancy car or see someone driving a Toyota Corolla have an, have an instant reaction that this person's wealthy and that, and that person's not. 
And it's often completely fake. And of course, there are some people who drive Subarus who are very wealthy and other people who drive BMWs who are hanging on by the skin of their teeth. And this is why we have such a false view of like who we should aspire to be and who we admire. And it gets a lot of people into trouble just because there's a difference between rich and wealthy. Now, a lot of people would say, why would I want to be wealthy? Why would I want money that I'm not spending? What's the point of, of, of saving money if I'm never going to spend it? And that seems like a gotcha, like aha question. Um, but I, I actually think there's a really good answer to it. And it's what most people actually want, which is independence and controlling their time and having control over their schedule and just being able to wake up every morning and say, I can do whatever the hell I want today because I have all this money saved up unspent that gives me a level of freedom and autonomy. And so that's, I think, one of the big problems here is that people only view richness. They only view how, like, how other people spend their money. And that's what they aspire to and try to chase. But what they actually want deep down from those people is independence. And you only get independence from wealth, which is the money that you did not spend. Okay. I want to drill into that a little bit. I noticed you used the word independence and not freedom. Is that intentional? No, I think there, I, I mean, I wouldn't know how to define those two that distinctly. I think just being able to wake up every morning and say, I can do whatever I want today. Even if what you want to do is go to work right. and work as hard as you can and even work for a company. If it's on your terms, it feels totally different than something that you have to do just to survive. But, but what if, so, and this, I, this is just a, sort of a hypothetical, but what if somebody's wants, desires are, my goal is to have my own jet then you're going to be never <laughs> independent and never doing what you want. You know what I mean? How do we moderate some of these appetites? I know we're all wanting to get away these days, but take a second to think about preparedness and preparing for the unexpected. Best way to do that is with an Air MedCare Network Fly You Home membership. AMCN Fly You Home is all about taking control of your care and your safety. If you get hurt or sick and are hospitalized more than 150 nautical miles from home, they will transport you to a hospital of your choice in a medically equipped private aircraft. You will not have to pay a dime out of pocket. They have completed over 18,000 missions and have over 30 years of experience, so you can expect industry-leading care while recovering. Now, you must be, of course, thinking this is expensive, but it is as little as $134 a year for your entire household. And if you use the code Dr. Drew, that is D-R-D-R-E-W, they will give you up to a $60 gift card when you join. Now, if you're like me and you want to get out there, I cannot recommend enough the peace of mind you will feel with an AMCN Fly You Home membership. Just visit airmedcarenetwork.com slash Dr. Drew today and get up to a $60 gift card with the code Dr. Drew. Again, that is airmedcarenetwork.com slash Dr. Drew and code Dr. Drew. ZocDoc, they make it easy to find quality physicians in your network and in your neighborhood. Plus, with verified real patient reviews, you can find the right doctor for you. They have quality doctors. It's, it's hard to identify sometimes, but with ZocDoc, you can find the right doctor in your network, as I said. With ease of booking, you don't have to be so frustrated with getting into an appointment. I, I hear about that every day. People are so frustrated with that, but not with ZocDoc. Booking an appointment with a physician that suits your needs, fits your schedule in your network, it is easy. ZocDoc is a free app that shows your physician's 
who are patient-reviewed, as I told you, and you can find every specialist available. ZocDoc's mobile app is as easy as ordering a ride to a restaurant. Go to ZocDoc.com to find the physician that is right for you. Every month, millions of people use ZocDoc. And go to ZocDoc.com and find the doctor that is right for you and book an appointment, either in person or remotely. That works for your schedule. Go to ZocDoc.com slash Drew and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then start your search for a top-rated physician today. Many are available within 24 hours. That is zocdoc.com slash Drew, zocdoc.com slash Drew. Well, yeah, I think you know, for, 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 for most people, like aspiring, let's not say a jet, but I want a bigger house. I want a nicer car. Yeah. Like as, as long as it's within, within reach, it's okay to have social aspirations. I have social aspirations and spending aspirations myself. To me, the important metric, and this is true no matter how much money you make, is that your expectations grow slower than your income. Because what really happened in the 1950s, or I would say starting in the 1970s and 80s, is that our incomes rose throughout the 80s, throughout the 90s, throughout the 2000s, the median income adjusted for inflation did go up, but our expectations rose by even, by, by, by even more. So if our incomes doubled, but our expectations went up by 3x, we feel like we're falling behind. Yeah. And I think at the individual level, it's the same. You can aspire for the nicer house. You can aspire for the private jet, as long as those expectations are below your level of income growth. And yeah. if they're not, then you're just living in a fantasy world and yeah. you're, you're going to constantly make yourself unhappy. Yeah. That's sort of what I was drilling into, which is that, that again, now you're going to be subjected to envy all the time. You know, because you're going to be looking at stuff on social media and seeing stupid posts that just are not realistic, you know, for the average person. It's just, you can, you can, well, so here's what I was thinking when you, when I heard you say this before, It, it seems like not understanding the distinction between wealth and rich fundamentally is a lack of understanding of how capitalism works, right? Like people don't understand that capital can work for you. People say things like that, oh, I want to make money while I sleep, but they really don't know what they're talking about, that you can accumulate certain amount of capital that can grow and throw off income and maybe even support you. And so you can have that independence and freedom. A, is that true that most people don't understand what that is and how that works? And B, isn't it somewhat unrealistic for most people too? Because incomes are so limited. So there's two questions. There. Well, I think there's. Yeah, I think so. The first part, I, I had this obnoxious quote in my book where I say, "When most people say they want to be a millionaire, what they actually mean is I want to spend a million dollars." That's what when, when, when most people dream about being a millionaire, they're like, it's not like, oh, I want to have a million dollars in the bank. Most people say, I want to spend a million dollars. And that's the opposite of a millionaire. So there's this disconnect between what people actually want. Is it, is it, uh, is it, is it unrealistic given moderate incomes? I would say it's all in, in context. I mean, the median American household today that the typical average household earns about $65,000 per year. That's the, that's the average. And if you had, if you adjust that for inflation and go back one generation, go back to the seventies, adjust it for inflation, $65,000 could have been like, you're, you're living the high life. Yeah. So I think like here again, it seems limited today because our expectations have grown so much faster than that reality. Yeah. And so this is why we spend so much time in the financial industry, financial advisors and on TV and in books talking about like, how can you earn more money? How can you grow your salary? How can you grow your net worth? Which is great, but it's only half the equation. The other half of the equation is how do you keep your expectations in check yeah. relative to that growth? Yes. And if you don't have that part of the equation, 
you're constantly going to be on this treadmill of unhappiness. And most people are, which is why we are the richest society that's ever existed in the history of this universe. And we don't feel any better for it. There's no evidence that I have seen that people are happier economically today than they were a hundred years ago, despite like ridiculous quality of life increases. I don't think we're any happier because it's all just an expectations and comparison game. And you bring up the word envy, which I I don't, but I I think that's really true. Like that's the core of it. There's also this quirk here that I need to point out, which is that a big part of the reason that there is economic growth and that there is innovation and technology breakthroughs is because people wake up every morning feeling inadequate Mm. and feeling like they need more. They need more success. So they go to work and try to like, try to push themselves as hard as they can. Mm. If everyone was content, like, so this is, this is the, the, the irony. My goal economically is just be content with what I have. Just Mm. be like, what I got is like, I'm cool with what I have. If everybody did that, there'd be no innovation. There'd be no growth. And then we'd all kind of slip backwards. So the fact that people do wake up with this sense of anxiety is what pushes us all forward that we should be thankful for. So this is not a problem that everyone can solve for themselves by def- like by definition. Yeah. Like that's the, that's the, 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 the weird quirk of all this is that we want a level of anxiety to push us forward. Okay. All right. So that, that's a reason. That's a good point is that, that these expectations are progress in a weird way, or at least defueling progress. Uh, but but let's get to this ledger of, on one hand, expectations are inflated, and on the other, and as I'll just state this as a fact, we have a profound pandemic of narcissistic structure to our personalities, and one of the great liabilities of narcissism is envy. And envy is not jealousy, Right, jealousy goes back to the expectation side. Jealousy is that guy's got what I got the yellow um, Lamborghini. I'm going to go to college and work hard and get that. That's not envy. Envy would have been fuck that guy. I'm going to drive this Lamborghini into the lake. That that's envy. Envy is tearing another guy down because you don't have what they have. But because we have so much narcissism, envy is on the loose. If you look at Almost every religion, one of the most serious injunctions is against envy. Envy is one of the most destructive emotions that humans have. So we have the comparison creating envy. We have the expectations inflating on the other side of the ledger. What do we do? What, what's the answer here? Uh, how, do you, how do you get to contentment? Is there, is there, do you have solutions? I, I, please don't turn it back on me and go, well, that's what the doctors are supposed to figure out. Have you thought about this? And, and is, there, is there something in the sort of behavioral economics that can help us sort of uh, be, be content or be, at least be excited about what we're doing, that we're, we're moving towards something and we're growing and we're building? And we don't have to have that. I'm just using the jet as the most out there kind of idea. You don't have to have the jet. We can be satisfied with the, with the as they say, with the, um, with the journey of growth and development. But I'll let you. I talk. think there's 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 a couple of things here. One, you're absolutely right that it is envy in the sense of it's not wanting to lift yourself up; it's wanting to tear the other group down. Yeah. We saw this really starkly in 2011 with Occupy Wall Street when that was a thing. Mm-hmm. The Occupy Wall Street movement was not lift up the poor people. It was tear down the rich people. So that's that's a very clear distinction there. I think if there was, if there is any bit of this that I would, when I talk to people about like that point, it's if you get to know enough wealthy people, and I'm sure you do, they're not any happier than than anyone else, or at least they're not happier than... Oh no! You would expect oh, them to are. be. I just read Will Will Smith's biography, which is really, really good. Yeah, it's a that. super good book. Yeah, and he made this um, this point that I thought was really um, was 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 really good. Which he said when he was depressed and broke, 
he could tell himself that if he had more money, all of his problems would go away. And it gave him a sense of hope that he would say, oh, like everything sucks right now, but more money will be great. And then when he was rich and depressed, he no longer had that hope. And then his depression just fell deeper and deeper and deeper. Yeah. That's like the loneliness at the, at the mountaintop kind of, kind of idea. But I think you see that a lot. You see the same story over and over again. Of when people make a lot of money, particularly when they use that money for material goods, they say, look, it was great for a little while, but then it lost its shine, lost its flair. And then when I no longer had the hope that the bigger house would make me happy, then my depression fell even lower and lower and lower. Well, There's a little, little bit of like schadenfreude in that for yeah. ordinary people to look yeah. at that and say, ha ha, see, it's, it's not that great and I'm, I'm better. But when you hear that story enough, I think it, it should get really ingrained in you. The other point that I make, I make this point in the book, which is that I, I, this is like an observation that I had when I was a valet, which was when, when somebody would drive in in a Ferrari or a Bentley or something like that, I would never look at the driver and say, whoa, that guy is cool. What I would do is I would imagine myself as the driver. And then I would say, whoa, if that was me, people would think I'm cool. And that irony, that disconnect that nobody cared about the driver, they just imagined themselves as the driver. And the, the irony of that, I think, was, was really profound on me, that no one thinks about you as much as you do. Everyone, whenever they are looking at your material goods, they're just imagining themselves having them. Yeah. They're not thinking about you. They're not thinking that Morgan's cool, Drew is cool. That's not what they're thinking. They're thinking they would be cool if they were you. And then, so when you really take that to heart, I think uh, when you realize that you get way less social, like way less credit for your material goods than you think you do, social credit, yeah. then I think you, your aspiration for them declines a little bit. And, and that's, that, 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 that's what has worked the best for me. And that's why my wife and I have a really high savings rate. It's like the best that you can get out of money is contentment. You get contentment from independence. So let me save most of my money, just have it sitting around in the bank to give me independence and freedom and autonomy. And that's the best that we can do. Um, A couple comments. Um, I'm trying how to go at this. Uh, The, the rich people being less happy. Uh, you know, I worked in a psychiatric hospital for 35 years, and the one thing that jumped out of me immediately when I got there was, oh, my God, the very rich and the very poor have much more in common with each other than the rest of us. They were, they were, yeah. oh, they, that's who was in the psych hospital, very wealthy and very poor. And they were a lot of psychopathology. So as far as being uh, not so happy when they're rich – Yes, if you do not – what makes people happy is relationships and family. That's what makes people happy. We know that for sure. Okay, that's just it. And if you don't attend to that and if you if you don't have some health there and some, some, some focus there, you're going to be unhappy. And if you don't get treatment for psychopathology, you're not going to be happy. But I will say those people that do have the priority in their relationships will uh, spend and invest and in, in time and, and resources into treating whatever psychopathic stuff, psychopathological stuff shows up. Um, when they have a lot of money, they are a lot happier. They are. I've been around a lot of them. They are really, yeah. they really like having, and they can talk about what they were like earlier, not as happy, and they are happier now. It, it, so to say that that doesn't work is sort of, ugh, it's not been my experience. There are tons miserable, there are tons of miserable rich people, tons, and there are as many miserable rich people as poor people. But that's because of these fundamental facts about human beings. And the other thing is, as you pertains to the, you know, having stuff and people not caring about you, they do care about you when they want to tear you down. This back to fuck that guy. I'm going to drive his car. Yes, in the, they, they do yes. care about you then. Um, uh, so 
Th- it is. That's, that's when they're looking at you. One, right. one, one point here about, about those, those fundamental truths that I think yeah. is, is really good. Yeah. There's a geront, uh, gerontologist named Carl Pillimer who about a decade ago wrote a book called 100 Lessons for Living. And he interviewed uh, 1,000 Americans who are in their 90s or early 100s. And he just asked them, like, how can I live a good life? What have you learned in your long life that I can learn from? And he has a section on money. And he says, uh, of the 1,000 people that he interviewed, not a single one of them looking back at their life said, I wish I earned more money. Mm. And not a single one of them said, I wish I had bought fancier stuff. Mm. But virtually all of them, every single person said, I wish I spent more time with my family. Yeah. I wish I was nicer to my friends and my neighbors. Yeah. I wish I had gone out of my way to help my neighbors more than I did. Every single one of them said that, yeah. and not a single person said, I wish I had more money. You're right. I left a thing out, which is service. That's right. Making a difference, contributing meaningfully. Uh, what is it Adam Smith said? Uh, they not only want to be loved, but be lovely. Uh, in the eyes of others. I think that was his quote, something like that. Uh, uh, and yep. I, and I, I, I think I, I forget what I was hearing you talk about, but I thought I heard echoes of Adam Smith and some of the things you were saying. Is, is that uh, uh, some of his moral philosophy and, and I've, wealth I've, of nations? I think that's I've, – I've never read Adam Smith's books because they're written in old English. It's the it's the densest reading you can possibly imagine. But I think there 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 are a couple of takeaways. I mean, he was the first person to understand the power of the free market, understand what the free market was, the invisible hand. But I've I've never dug deep into his stuff. There's a there's a, a modern author economist named Russ Roberts who has tried to really modernize Adam Smith's work and in a way of like, here's his points. And let me explain it to you in modern English rather than old English. Yeah. Um, but I've, 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 I've never dug through the wealth of nations. I've tried. It's miserable. So Russ Roberts has a podcast uh, called Econ Talk. And in his earlier pods, not more recent ones, like maybe like from three years ago, he did, a, he talked to a lot of scholar, Adam Smith type scholars, a lot. And that's how I got hooked on Econ Talk. I'm, lately it's gone sideways a bit for me but but if you want to learn about adam smith that's a great place to go i totally agree with you have you heard his podcast you heard econ talk he's wonderful yeah oh yeah he's he, he's he's great he was the first person who, who i said or who i who, who i heard uh say um most people want to be not just love but lovely it's yeah. a great adam smith quote he was who he was that's that was where i first came across yeah, this, it's, it's this, wonderful and, and it's interesting that you know people condemn adam smith and this one, one of the points that that uh russ points out which is Adam Smith thought of himself not as a as a political or economic uh, interpreter of history or philosophy. He saw himself as a moral philosopher. His his he he wrote a book on morality, yep. and that was his uh, opus, you know, his great opus for, from his standpoint. But he he talks about he sort of t- teases apart, you know, how it is. He is a great. Uh, I don't get too deep into it, but he's got a great essay in in the Wealth of Nations about how uh, a sailor wearing a pea coat is able to afford that pea coat and where it comes from, and he goes all the way down to the shepherds, you know, moving the sheep around and shearing the sheep and doing the looms and how this system works. And when you when you really stand back and look at economies, it is breathtaking. It is it is phenomenal that what we're able to do as human beings and and create these things that we can you know make our lives better and we can afford. And attacking it I, always mystifies me, you know, trying to control it and attack it. And, and uh, you know, where maybe I'll ask you sort of a global question. We, we've, sort of, we've sort of been through the basics here, and we've, I, I've, I think I've got what I wanted out of envy and, and expectation. The answer is there is, you know, work on yourself, everybody. That's the answer, <laughs> really. <laughs> Moderate your expectations. Learn how capitalism works. Um, 
you know, realize envy is a – no one gets more destroyed by envy than you. It's a, it's a toxic, awful emotion. No one's happier because they're envious. Service is where happiness comes in. Families is where happiness comes in. But but where are we today? Do you, do you have any thoughts about that and, you know, in terms of the craziness in social media and all the – Everyone that thinks they know everything, it's just to me, is humility is lacking everywhere. Um, any thoughts about where we're headed? I think it's it's definitely true that, you know, we, we, we still have no idea what social media has done to the economy and to sociology and to where it's, it's going to go. I mean, it was not that long. We're talking 10 years ago or less than that, that social media was just like a budding little thing that people ex- were experimenting yeah. with. So we really don't know where that's going to go and its ability to influence certain economic cycles and whatnot. I would say that whenever someone says the economy seems so crazy today, I always want to point out that it's always been crazy. Right. It's always been insane. It's yes. always been boom to bust. There's this great John Stewart quote where he says, the only reason the world seemed better during your childhood is because you were a child. Like <laughs> things have know. always been nuts. <laughs> things have always been crazy. Yeah. And if you compare what's going on today with what happened in the 70s, which was happening in the 30s and the 1920s, pick your decade. Things are actually pretty calm today. Yeah. It's not to say they're calm. Yeah. It's that they're calm relatively to the insanity of what it's always been. Yeah. And you know, we have it used to be if you go back to the you you had mentioned the late 1800s, that period after the civil war, it was during that period in the United States, there was a recession every 18 months, like yeah, clockwork, that's right. like clockwork, it's a every bad 18 one. months, some, some everything severe, fell apart. Some severe and then during ones. some really, some really bad ones. Yeah. And I think part of the reason that people are so shocked at the state of today's economy is because the idea of an economic downturn is foreign to them. Yeah. It feels like something is wrong. Whereas back then it was just like the passing of the seasons. Right. And That's so right. I think a lot of our anxiety across the global economy today comes from how good we have it. Now, I, that's not to diminish the hardship of people. If people are in some really shitty positions today. I just point out that they, they, it's, that's always been the case. Yeah. So that's that's the biggest distinction that I ever make when people talk about the quote unquote crazy economy. Today. Yeah. No, I have to tell you, just hearing you say that is reassuring. I hope other people feel reassured as well, because that is absolutely the truth. We're just not used to it. We should be used to it. And I've noticed Elon Musk has been tweeting a lot about how healthy it is. We need this. We need these downturns. And that's pretty much what everyone is saying that, you know, we've been faced with some really awful situations economically with the 2008 crisis and then covid and the 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 only path you know of where the the lender of last resort has stepped in everyone kind of agrees they kind of had to and now now we pay the price now we got to deal with it now we have to adjust You've heard me talk about it before, the Jordan Harbinger Show, a podcast you should be listening to, named one of the best of 2018. It's aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker, and of course, Jordan himself is a great interview with interesting life experience, speak multiple languages, has been everywhere and lived everywhere and had crazy experiences where he himself has been held hostage. He talks to people like an FBI negotiator who offers techniques on how to get people to like and trust you. Very useful. Jordan is always focused on pulling useful practical insights out of his guest, not just uh, superficial stuff. The episodes are loaded with wisdom you can use to legitimately change your mind, improve your life in good ways. It's worth checking it out. Adam enjoys it. I enjoyed it. You'll enjoy it. It's the Jordan Harbinger Show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy. G-E-R. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. And of course, BetterHelp is a group that I have been talking about for quite some time. Uh, now that we have an understanding that you can get help for emotional issues, for mental health issues, through electronic media, um, I mean, why not? And why would you allow stigma to stand in the way of that? I know that sometimes people are worried about mm, waiting rooms and things like that, but not anymore, not with uh, better help. And I've referred patients, I've referred family, friends, and I've been very pleased with the professional services provided. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, even live chat-only therapy sessions. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash Drew. That is Better, B-E-T-T-E-R, BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, BetterHelp.com slash Drew. I mean, I, 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 what, what's definitely true is I think the most important period in modern U.S. history was the Great Depression. And everyone should go back and read what it was like to live in the 1930s, yeah. what it was like to not only lose your job, but then realize that your entire life savings was wiped out at the bank because there's no FDIC insurance. And what that did to people, I mean, it was that, that was probably almost on par with the civil war of holding the United States together. Because yeah. in, the, in the 1930s, in the early 1930s, 1931, 32, the push among smart, reasonable Americans to say, this system doesn't work anymore. Maybe we should try fascism like they're trying in Europe. That push was so strong and so appealing because so many millions of Americans had just lost everything. And that's, there's, there's this really, not, not to go on too much of a, of a tangent here, Diary. but there's some really interesting work um, interviewing people in Germany mm. and, and asking them in the 1920s and the 1930s and asking them, how did Hitler come to power? How did a civilized nation full of smart, educated people embrace Adolf Hitler? And there's a lot of reasons for that. But the, the narrative that I think is most interesting are people who are the Germans who say, you have to understand in the 1920s, we lost everything. Yeah. The economy was completely destroyed in yeah. the 1920s. Yeah. And Adolf Hitler came along and said, I will give you a better way. And in that world, when you've lost everything, when you're starving, when you've lost your job, you've lost your house, if someone comes along and says they have a better way, you are going to embrace them. Yeah. And I think we, we came so close to that in America. Uh, just because the system wasn't working for people. That's and I think a lot of the systems that we have right now, FDIC insurance, the Fed printing money, the stimulus packages, yeah. the big deficits are so easy to criticize. But the reason that we do them is to avoid some of those deep areas when, when economic decline leads to social decline or social collapse. You were so right about the Germans and, and Hitler. I, I had a, my parents had a friend long, long since passed away that was a, you know, an adolescent during the 30s. And I asked her those questions and because she was unapologetic about having – I think she supported Hitler even though she left Germany. Uh, and she said, look, we had nothing and he came and he built soccer fields. <laughs> he built soccer fields. We were kids. And he built soccer fields and sort of right. some, some sort of infrastructure for uh, recreation and uh, people started to thrive again. And I, I, it, was our only, it was our only hope kind of thing. And, uh, and he said he would do it and then he did it. And so that's, that was it. Um, right. uh, the, are you the one that referenced the diary from the depressions? You read it. Was that you? I heard talking about that because I, I immediately bought that yes. book. I, it just arrived today. I immediately bought it because I thought, oh, that is the way to to understand. T talk about that. 
Yes. So there was in the 1930s, there was a lawyer in Youngstown, Ohio named Benjamin Roth. He was just a small town lawyer, but he kept a very detailed diary during the Great Depression. And his son published it in 2010. The book is called The Great Depression, A Diary. And I think it's, I think it is unintentionally the best economics book ever written because when Benjamin Roth was writing these entries in the 1930s, there's no hindsight bias. He did not know what was going to happen next. Every every book that we write today about the Great Depression, we know how the story ends and that colors our view of what happened at the time. Yep. Benjamin Roth was writing these diary entries in 1932. He has no clue what's going to happen next. And so, and he was very uh, astute at just understanding the sociology of what was going on. He was very observant about what his neighbor was going through. Since he was a lawyer, he was helping a lot of local businesses navigate the bankruptcy process and whatnot. And I think it's just fascinating. One of the fascinating parts about the book is that, um, you know, I, I first read it when, probably when it came out in 2011 or 2012. And the parallels between what people were thinking and saying in 1932 were so close to what people were saying in 2008 and 2009 during that downturn. And so close to what people were saying in 2020 during the COVID collapse of 2020. It's like all of these big behaviors repeat themselves. They don't change over time. The economic situation changes. The, 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 the makeup of the economy changes, but the behaviors that people go through of greed and fear and extrapolating what's going on in the future, that's just an innate part of how humans think. And I think it'll, that'll be true a hundred years from now as well. So it's fascinating to read it and just say like, oh yeah, that's what we dealt with 90 years later. What you dealt with back then is exactly what we're dealing with today. But I, I think it's just a, it's a wonderful economic book. Yeah. I think you said you read it more than a couple of times. I'm, I'm traveling tomorrow. I immediately put it in my sack. I'm starting it tomorrow. I just, I just bought it immediately when I heard you say that, because that makes so much sense. That's how you learn about human behavior is as it's, as it's happening. Just, I'm going to put you on the spot. Did anything about, anything still stand out to you, a, a lesson learned from other than what you just mentioned uh, from his diary? Like, something I can look for as I'm reading it? There's, yeah, there, there's two things that I found really interesting. One is that during the early 1930s, virtually every one of his posts says, I'm so worried about hyperinflation. Uh-huh. All of my neighbors, everyone knows hyperinflation is right around the corner. There's uh-huh. nothing we can do about it. The government's printing so much money. Hyperinflation, here we come. Uh-huh. That's what's, what's fascinating is that in hindsight, we knew what actually caused the Great Depression, the, the Great Depression was deflation. It was yeah. the exact opposite. Yeah. Now, that was the exact same in 2008. In 2008, the number of people, smart people on TV who said hyperinflation right around the corner, it's coming was everywhere. And it it wasn't. So like those two parallels of fearing the wrong thing, I thought was really interesting. The other thing he makes this quote in 1932, where he says, everyone knows that stock prices are the bargain of a lifetime. Everyone knows that real estate opportunities are just incredibly good right now, but nobody has any cash to take advantage of it. Oh, I thought that was a really interesting observation too, yeah. because it just goes to show like, what is the value of holding cash in your checking account? It's not to earn a good return. It's not to you know earn the, the, the half a percent interest rate. What cash gives you is options when yeah. the world goes to shit. That's what it does. And his was the starkest example. But reading that was really informative, too. There's something that happened in 2008 that, for me, I'll never forget. That really, I don't think people talk that much about it. Is that it pertains to cash, which is that the way people held cash prior to 2008 was in the money market. And the freaking money markets froze. They froze. No one ever imagined that could happen. And to me, that was so stunning. Uh, I'm surprised people don't talk more about that to this day. Yeah, there, there, there have been some regulatory changes since 2008 that should make it a little bit better. And the Fed, to its credit, in 2008 
did everything it could to unfreeze it. And they unfroze fairly quickly. But that same thing is going on today with a lot of crypto exchanges that have been oh, yeah. shut down, frozen in the oh, last yeah. couple of weeks. So oh, people yeah. are relearning those lessons today. Oh, yeah. things, things, things you think are liquid can, I guess they learned the, the bank piece of it in the, during the bank uh, crises in the, in the 30s. Um, but the, the, the money market's freezing to me. It was like, that, that was cash. That was supposed to be cash. They pretended that was cash. Right. It wasn't. It was a money market. Uh, you, 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 you know, there, there's stuff hidden in these um, systems we use that you, that's, the again, fearing the wrong stuff, not seeing the, the real liabilities that are coming our way. Listen, uh, I have so There's appreci- one other quote. There's yeah, one other quote that I got to share that I think Go. is so- Please. Oh, yeah, yeah, one other thing. He, he has this uh, entry, and I think like late 19... 19- 40, where he says, look, the Great Depression was so terrible. Americans cannot fathom anything that tragic or that traumatic happening again. Mm. And I remember reading that and thinking that was 12 months before Pearl Harbor. And it just goes to show how scarred and battered that generation was. However, I can imagine somebody saying that in December, you know, 2019 about the Great Recession and then boom, COVID. You know what I mean? It's, it's, there, right. you know, who, and, and again, you got to remind yourself that in, in December of 2019, people were standing around making economic predictions about 2020. You know what I mean? That shows you how much, how, you know, you, you, you got to always leave room for the black swan. The, the black swan yeah. uh, could show up uh, at any time. Not that you should plan on a black swan, but you should not be um, shocked if a black swan emerges because they're inevitable every so often. Listen, you did not disappoint, Morgan. Thank you so much for coming in and coming in so quickly. I, I hope we did uh, your book justice. Uh, I, you, everyone needs to go out and get it right now, The Psychology of Money. Don't just go out and get that depression diary. Go get The Psychology of Money. Timeless lessons on wealth, greed, happiness. T- give me a, a one-minute pitch on what people are going to get out of the book. I think what you get out of the book is 19 short stories. They're short chapters because I don't want to waste your time that tell a story. Usually has nothing to do with money or investing, but shows how people think about risk and greed and fear. And you'll be able to hopefully understand your own flaws, your own shortcomings and how to overcome them. Not, it, the, the book is not about what to do with your money. It's not about where the stock market is going to go next. It's just about how you can think about greed and fear and happiness in a better way so that hopefully you can become more happy or more content with the money that you have. Would it be accurate to say, modify our relationship with money and learn how to uh, make capitalism work for you? How about that? I like that. Right. I think if there's, if, if there's a takeaway, I hope you become more introspective about your money yeah. and learn to, uh, to value independence over material possessions a little bit greater. Morgan Housel, morganhousel.com, H-U-S-E-L, at Morgan Housel on Twitter. Thank you, sir, for being here. Thanks, Drew. And we will see you all next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is in Intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com.
On the Jordan Harbinger Show, you'll hear amazing stories from people that have lived them, including how skating legend Tony Hawk virtually defined the entire sport. Check out this preview of the Jordan Harbinger Show. I picked up skating at the tail end of its first boom in the 70s. That was the trend. And then when I discovered the possibilities and I literally saw people flying out of empty swimming pools, that was my wow moment. There was like a danger factor. There was this edgy factor. And I just devoted myself to it. I want to learn how to fly. One of my worst injuries in the beginning was I got a concussion. I knocked my teeth out. I knew when I woke up in the pro shop of the skate park that I wanted to get back out there and do it. I can't believe people still recognize me. You know, it's weird. Skateboarding now, some people get into it to be rich or famous. When I got into it, neither one of those things was even possible. For more with Tony Hawk, including how he almost lost control of his brand, check out episode 234 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. All month long, the biggest movies are streaming free on Pluto TV's Popcorn Summer Movies. Watch star-studded blockbusters like Titanic and Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. Or fall in love with charming rom-coms like Hitch and How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. The best part? Pluto TV is 100% free. No credit cards, not even a sign-up. Plus, Pluto TV has hundreds of channels with thousands more movies, TV shows, and more. Download the Pluto TV app on all your favorite devices and start streaming now. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free.